Everybody hear okay? Ronnie, can you hear me? All right. Not hard to hear. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and hard of hearing means not how well you hear, but how well you listen. <laughs> he can hardly hear. He can hardly hear. He can hardly listen either. <laughs> My voice could give out. I don't know. It's a little aggy game. It's a little, it's a little tender. So, bear with me today. All right, so we're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Let me fix my notes real quick, make it easy for me to speak. Genesis 6. So right now, we're in a series kind of exploring this common theme that I think is in the Bible, something that kind of, you know, this book, I said last week, it's all connected. And it's all true, and there's one single storyline that keeps it all together, and one of the the themes of this storyline is this concept of death. And, you know, this is the story of God. I you know, I call it that. Because I think it really is the story of God. The true, infallible narrative of how God created everything perfect and how, how mankind made it imperfect and how God is planning and God is working and he's working through his people, even through imperfect people, to bring it all back to what it originally was supposed to be. Okay? That's the Bible. And I think, so we're exploring that, but I don't want us to just receive that as knowledge like you would in a, a lectureship under a professor. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a professor. I want to help you understand your role to play in the story of God, okay? And we want to know the story of God. We want to know that it's one single story. We want to know what to do with it. Because sometimes we just know it and we don't know how to apply it. So how are we going to apply the story of God to our lives? How can I make it prevalent and applicable to your everyday, your day-to-day? How can you live in a certain way, in a certain way that glorifies God 24-7? And so last week we looked at the origin of death, and we looked at Genesis 3 to understand why the world is the way that it is, why we taught it the world is the land of death. And I want to look today at God's grand plan for the land of death, and today we're looking at the judgment of the land of death. Uh, so we're going to be in, like I said, Genesis 6, and look at, does the judgment apply to us? What can we do to be saved from it? And I kind of mentioned last week, you know, we found the gospel in a graveyard in Genesis 3, and in Genesis 6, we'll find the gospel in a flood. And that's really what I want to get at. So Genesis 6, verses 5 through 14, Genesis 6, 5 through 14, it says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. It says, The Lord was grieved that he had even made man on earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And so the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds in the air, for I am grieved that I have even made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, Blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Let's pray. 
Father, we recognize this as your work. We recognize this as everything we need for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training us in righteousness. So tune our hearts to hear it and speak through me by the Holy Spirit to make this prevalent in our life, God. Uh, thank you for this word that is given to us for every good and perfect deed. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay. Every single, this is a quote, every single biblical doctrine of theology, directly or indirectly, ultimately has its basis in the book of Genesis. If churches haven't taught generations of young people the foundational history in Genesis 1 to 11, there's no foundation for anything because Genesis is the foundation for all doctrine. Ken Ham, he's the founder and CEO of Answers Genesis. Uh, I think the book of Genesis has a dual nature and has two different natures that I think don't work against each other. They work together quite well. And I mentioned last week that I take this book very literally. I really do. I think Moses wrote very historically. I think this is a historical book. And I think it can even be a little bit of a science book. But I want to say that it's not just that. I want to say this book is also, the book of Genesis really is very poetic. The book of Genesis is very, very metaphorical. And uh, we get two ends of the spectrum when we look at Genesis. One is a super literal historical narrative. The other one is it's all poetry. It's all a metaphor. Both sides are wrong. They really connect up here to form into one grand picture. And uh, I was thinking of how to explain this to you, and I wish I had an actual illustration, physical, tangible illustration to help you with this. But I kind of imagine it is if you had uh, a, a thick piece of paper and uh, there was scribbles on it and there was lines drawn everywhere and it really didn't make any sense. You don't know what the drawing is. And... Then you take a thinner piece of paper, and it also has these drawings and scribbles on it that, that doesn't make any sense. What is this picture supposed to be? But say you put the, the thinner veil, the thinner paper, on top of the thicker paper, and you see all the lines start to line up together, and then you kind of get a broader picture. We, act, we actually get the real picture of what the image is. And I also think about it, about a double lens sunglasses or something like that. Let's say the first lens was blue, and then you... You put a yellow lens on top of that blue lens. And the problem is, if you had each one, you'd just be blue or you'd just be yellow. Or you put one on top of the other, you're going to see green, right? You get a brand new picture, a picture that's understandable when you put one on top of the other. And I think that's how we do Genesis. We have this historical base layer with a metaphorical poetic layer on top that helps us to understand the Word of God as it's meant to be understood. That's how the Jews wrote. So we want to understand how Jews understood the Bible. And if we can understand that, in this specific text, we can also understand three promises that are only understood through these double-layered lenses. And so I'm going to teach you Scripture. That's my goal. If y'all notice the trend with me, I kind of teach and then I kind of preach. That, that's just the way I try to do it. It's simple for me. It's understandable for me. I think it's good for you, too. And uh, we're going to look at the historical picture and the metaphorical picture together. Because that's what we need. And so the setting of Genesis 6 is this is 1,600 years uh, after Adam and Eve sinned against God. 1,600 years. If you count from the, the descendant tree in Genesis 5, that's how you come up with that. And so the earth is being filled and subdued as God wanted, to do, wanted it to be. So the earth is multiplying. In fact, uh, 
that same answers in Genesis, that that apologetics organization that I, I really like, they they used a conservative estimate to guess the world's population over time at a 1.1% growth rate. They said at a 1.1% growth rate per year, the Earth's population would be close to 150 million people at the time, which is quite a lot. And if they were to take a uh, less conservative at a 1.4% growth rate, the Earth's population would be close to 20 billion at the time. 1,600 years is plenty of time to fill and subdue the Earth. But regardless, that's not my point. The point is, as man multiplies, wickedness and sin multiplies too. And uh, you'll read that. It says the earth became very, very corrupt. And our best way, I think, to picture what humanity looked like at this time is actually what Jesus said humanity looked like at this time. Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about what the last days are going to look like. At the time of his second coming, he says, the time of the second coming, the last days are going to look as if it was, the times look as if they were the times Noah's. The last days of Noah and the flood. And uh, when Jesus is using this, he speaks in context. The world's kind of in this tribulation, and there's a lot of hostility. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of sinfulness, a lot of wickedness going on right now. And uh, it's full of false religions, false ideas, false gods. And Jesus says that the people ate, and they drank, and they got married. Which we don't really understand that term, but if you understand Jesus' context, he's saying that people ate, drank, and married as if they just went on with their lives without reverence or respect for God. They didn't fear God. They just kept doing whatever they wanted without reverence and respect for the Lord. 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 4 says, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. This people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Second Peter, Peter says that Noah was a preacher to these types of people, and so the people were not without excuse. He was a preacher of righteousness, and he warned them. The people just kept eating, drinking, getting married, and living recklessly in hostility to the Creator. No fear, reverence, respect, or love for the Almighty. And it may look very familiar to you. Because, to be honest, we live in the last days. I believe that's the last days we've been here since Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. But it seems even more now that things look like they're in the last days. It almost looks like we're at the tail end of the last days. Okay, Very comparable generation. Our generation and the generation of Noah. And the thing is, in the days, in the days of Noah, Noah lived in a land of death. And in your day, you live in a land of death, too. And so how does God feel about this wickedness and corruption? Let's look at that. Verse 6, read with me. It says, The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. The ESV, some of you may have the ESV, but the ESV says God felt regret. And that's originally where I developed the sermon from, was from the ESV. So I'm going to center around this term regret. So how can God have sorrow? How can God have regret? And uh, you're thinking, how could the God of the universe, who is perfect, have such feeling like this? And I want to first say uh, that you can have regret for things that go wrong, but it's not your fault, right? So God has regret for an action that's not his mistake. Another thing is uh, God is not an unpassionate dictator, right? He is 
very personal. He has feelings. He has emotions. Um, this is, we're made in God's image. That's that's clear. And it is possible for God to regret an action without it being a mistake. Do you understand what I'm saying? He can regret an action without it being a mistake. For example, we regretted sending soldiers um, to Europe in World War II. He regretted that, but we did not see it was a mistake. The action was not a mistake because it knew we knew it was for the purpose of good. Or you may, some of you may have had children who had certain defects, certain health defects. Say, a parent has a child with cancer, and that child uh, terribly dies of that cancer. You would almost have regret that that child had to go through that, but you don't see it as a mistake to have had that child and to have cared for that child. Uh, Jesus himself mourns over Jerusalem because of what the people are going to do with him. He regrets on behalf of the people going to kill him, but he most certainly does not see it as a mistake for them to kill him because that is the destiny that he has to fulfill on behalf of the Father. And so you kind of understand that regret is really sorrow. It's sorrow, it's sadness, it's, it's disappointment, and that's how God feels. Uh, and the thing is, we read in verse 7, it says, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, both men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. And so even in mourning, though, even in God's sorrow and disappointment, what does he stand for? He stands for justice, right? Man is corrupt, man is unholy, God is not corrupt, and God is holy. So God, because he is perfect, must judge mankind. He's going to cleanse the earth. And Noah is the only one, as we read in verse 8, who found favor in the eyes of God. And so, go to verse 8 and 9 as well. <clears throat> right, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah, that Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among his generation, and he walked with God. It's kind of interesting. How can Noah be righteous? How can Noah uh, be, have favor in the eyes of God if he doesn't even have a law to obey? He really doesn't. He doesn't have a written standard of codes to obey, right? So how is Noah someone who finds favor in the eyes of God? How is Noah righteous in the eyes of God? Uh, well, it's because Noah feared God, Noah sought, and Noah trusted God. Hebrews 11, uh, verses 6 through 8, says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Forever would draw near to God must believe first that he exists, and that second, he rewards those who seek him. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So apart from Noah and those saved because of his faith, all mankind and all creation is subject to the wrath of God. Okay? Verse 11 through 14 says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. As God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said, I'm going to put an end to all the people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And so you are to make an ark of gopher wood. We have a land of violence and a land of corruption, a land of disorder, a land of death. And it's all predestined by God to be destroyed. That's Genesis 6. Man, because of his wickedness, and earth because of man's wickedness, is going to be destroyed on behalf of God's holiness. And we read, really, that this is the theme of Genesis 6 through 8. But we also read, what in verse, what in verse 14? And God commanded Noah to build an ark of gopher wood. 
And so God's going to bring destruction, but already an assurance, the promise that we're getting here is that God is also going to provide a way of escape. Okay? Verse, eight, verse 18, if you'll skip down, we didn't read it earlier, but we'll read it now. It says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives with you. And so God makes a promise, right? God makes a promise. A covenant is a promise. And God says, I am not going to break this promise. He says, I will preserve the life through the flood. And so mankind itself, because of Noah, will be saved alongside two of each living creature as well. The covenant, you know what the covenant is? It's the same one. It's the same covenant God always makes. Trust me, be saved. Okay? You're already noticing the theme of Genesis 6. Verse 22 says that Noah did all that God commanded him. So, what's God going to do? What did God just promise? Well, God is going to go on to orchestrate the greatest natural catastrophe to ever mark the earth. Okay? From a scientific perspective, from how we look at Genesis, if we were to read it historically and to understand the whole concept of water from above, water from below, uh, God is going to unleash an incredible cataclysmic event that is going to create continents, that's going to create barrier reefs, that's going to form mountains, that's going to fossilize billions of animals and plants within minutes. It's pretty incredible. And I could, I could go on day, all day about the apologetics of Genesis 6. I really could, but I have to keep it pretty on point. You need to know God releases water from below, oceans of water below the earth at supersonic speeds, and it releases water from the sky, from the firmament, that falls as rocks, essentially. And that's for 40 days. And I want to notice that term 40. 40 days, I think God really did make it rain for 40 days. But really, that 40, what does that mean? It means completion. It means totality. The destruction and the judgment of God is total. It is complete. When God judges, he judges in full. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 22 through 23 says that everything on the dry land of whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, both man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Genesis 8, we see the floods subside. Uh, and altogether, God's judgment is accomplished, right? This is all Bible school stuff where you learned this when you were five. So you understand what I'm talking about. God's judgment is accomplished. The corruption on earth is being washed clean. And the ark, or rather those on the ark, are saved from it. God's covenant is fulfilled. His promises are kept. And the way God, listen to this, the way God keeps his promises still stands today. That's what I want to get from this scripture. God keeps his promises that he makes. Okay? And be assured of that. And that's, that's just what Noah had, actually. Noah had the promises of God. Noah, who lived among a corrupted generation in a land of death, had God's promises in his heart. What I want you to have, since you live among a corrupted generation, you live in a land of death, is to have the God, God's promises within your own heart. And so there are three assurances. There are three promises that God makes in Genesis 6 through 8 that still exist today for each one of you. Because what we have read today is not just history, but it's empowerment to you for your day-to-day. -day. And it's not just history, but it's critical Christian doctrine that you have to know and to know to apply to your life. And there is a bitter promise, there is a bittersweet promise, and there is a sweet promise. Uh, and so number one, 
is the bitter promise of judgment that God gives us in chapter 6. We read in Genesis 3 of God's promise to bring the curse of death upon man, upon every creature, and upon all creation. And God promises to destroy his enemies, right? Promise number one, he destroys his enemies. And in Genesis 6, we are receiving, really, a foreshadow of a future judgment to come, a more full, a more total judgment than the one in Genesis 6. Verse 6, 13, God promises to destroy the earth of Noah's day. And in 2 Peter, God promises to destroy the earth of your day too. He promises to destroy the corrupted generation of your day. Very, like I said, this is bitter, but it's true. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, it says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a war, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up, and they will be dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Knowing the judgment of God is coming, what sort of people ought you to be? Peter says you ought to live holy and godly lives as you wait, as you wait on the day of the Lord and as you hasten the day of the Lord, which is an interesting term to say, hasten. How can I speed up the process? There's something there. That'll come another time, though. And so we know that. That's the bitter promise of God. Number two is the bitter promise of redemption in chapter 7. We read in Genesis chapter 3 last week, actually, God promises to close humanity, that God promises to shelter humanity, right? He promises to give that. In Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, God provides that shelter. He provides that way of escape from the judgment of the flood. And God brings Noah and his family to safety. Verse 23 of chapter 7 says, Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. First Peter 3, 18 through 21, this is one we all know pretty well, says, For Christ, listen to this, this is the gospel, For Christ also suffered, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they did not formally obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, only eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you notice the connection here? <laughs> you don't even notice it. It's right there. It's written there for you. Genesis 6 and 2 Peter. It's craziness. This book is connected, like I said. And just as Noah obeyed God by climbing onto a boat to save a few, Jesus obeyed his father by climbing onto a cross to save many. All right? And just as Noah was saved by a vessel, you are saved by a vessel. You are saved on a boat. It's very fascinating. And from the second promise, this is what we find. You need an ark. Right? You need an ark. You need an ark, one, to escape judgment. Number two, you need an ark to be brought to the shelter of God. And by the grace of God, you have one offered to you. You have an ark offered to you through water. And you need only do what? Enter through the door. And that's what's bittersweet is that there's only one door. And that door's name is the Lord Jesus Christ. The ark's name is the Lord Jesus Christ. God promises the Lord Jesus in Genesis chapter 6. This book is true. The gospel is true. And Noah's ark bore the judgment of the flood. Our ark 
but all our treasures, it bears the judgment of another flood, and that flood is the flood of God's wrath. He absorbed it for you. The Savior took your judgment for you. That's the promises of Genesis, promise of Genesis 6. And by his death, burial, and resurrection, you can also be free from the judgment of death. And that's what makes the promise bittersweet, is that most refuse to go onto that ark. And that's our jobs here, is to make sure people are getting on the ark. We are as Noah, we are the preachers of righteousness, okay? But for those who enter the ark, Romans 8 says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And number three, the other promise we get that we find in chapter 8 is a sweet promise of peace. We read in Genesis 3 last week of God's promise to bring peace back to the earth, right? God's going to make all things new. God's going to crush the head of the serpent under the foot of the sun. And he says that the land of death is one day going to become a land of living. The corruption is going to become perfection. Okay? And Genesis 8 gives us that grand promise. And though you currently live in a land of death, one day it's going to be a land of the living. All right? Genesis 8, verses 8 through 9 says that at the end of the 40, in the completion, the complete days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove forth from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. He says, but the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand, took her, and brought her into the ark with him. The dove flies, right? The dove soars above the devastation, the corruption, all right? And sees the judgment upon the corruption. And what we do, what Noah did, is we stay in the ark. We wait obediently, we wait patiently, and we hasten the day to when it's made new again, okay? Waiting for life to return. Noah sends the ark, or Noah sends the dove again in verse 10 through 12. It says, he waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And so I knew that the waters had subsided from the earth, and he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. We have a dove, too. This is pretty cool. The promise of the Holy Spirit is in Genesis 8, right here, all right? You send this dove a second time, and we say, see that the land of death actually has a glimmer of hope. You know, even in our culture, who can tell me what the olive leaf stands for, or the olive branch? It's peace. It means an end to hostility. It means that the judgment is over, and everything is right again. And that's the message and the promise that the dove brings back. You have a dove, too. It's the same dove that descended on Jesus at his baptism and the same dove, the same Holy Spirit that rose him from the dead. And he promises you peace. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him, when you heard the gospel, when you understood it, when you accepted it and believed in him, you were sealed. You were given a promise of the Holy Spirit. And the, prom the Holy Spirit is the guarantor. He's the promise keeper of our inheritance. To come. That's what 113 says in Ephesians. And your inheritance and your possession is eternal life in paradise in peace with the Prince of Peace. Okay? I'll end on this because uh, we're going to take it back anyway. 
God gives a final promise of peace in chapter 9. It's the rainbow. It's funny enough. Of course I'm going to end on this because this is how God ends on it, with the judgment. God puts us, God gives Noah, and God still gives us a promise of peace in the sky. Because when it floods, it would make us think, oh, we're going to judge the earth again with water. Well, no. And really, I think this is more than a promise that God will never judge the earth with water again. This rainbow stands for a lot more, actually. This rainbow stands that God keeps his promises and that God is going to fulfill everything that he said he's going to fulfill. So when you see a rainbow, don't be distracted by what this world says that means. Be reminded of what God says that means, that God keeps his promises. And so I'm going to sum it up and end it on this. God judged and will judge creation. God judged and will judge the earth. God judged and will judge mankind. But God provides a way of shelter, and he promises a new creation. And the question to ask yourself is, am I in the ark? All right? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for bringing your people together. We are people of unity because we all have the same promise. We have the same seal of the Holy Spirit. Remind us, Lord, of your promises, Lord, that we have to walk obediently. We have to walk patiently expectingly in obedience because we know that one day you will judge this earth but lord we also know and i think we'll look at next week is that we are here to preach righteousness to those around us that they may also enter the ark we thank you for the lord jesus christ that he is our ark and that if we go through the door we should be saved and we should be justified before holy god and that we should have the shelter and provision of the god who made us i pray this all in his name may be forever praised amen